Welcome to Uptown Chats, a podcast where we share stories about environmental justice by and for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Lonnie. And I'm your other co-host, Jaren. And we both work at We Act for Environmental Justice. Jaren, what is We Act's mission? We Act's mission is to build healthy communities by ensuring that people of color and or low-income residents participate meaningfully in the creation of sound and fair environmental health and protection policies and practices. That's what we do. That's what we do. Unfortunately, today we are, you know, both uh, trying to stay cool because it is unseasonably warm outside, and we both know what that means. Uh, people are starting to turn on their air conditioners, even us, right, Lonnie? Yeah, I don't like to talk about being hot or the heat. Um, it's a very touchy subject for me, but we definitely had to turn the AC on. Yes, I walked into the office yesterday, and Lonnie was a little grumpy because it was, it was a little toasty outside and inside, and so we turned on the air conditioner in our office for a couple hours. And, of course, when those ACs start turning on, we know that also means that that energy usage is going up. And I got a little nervous when I saw that temperature going up because, you know, I, I knew my energy bill was just around the corner. In fact, I, I just paid my, my utility bill yesterday. And luckily, March was fairly moderate. It's not super hot, not super cold. So my bill was, was not terrible. But... I know it's getting warmer out, so I know just around the corner that bill is going to go right back up. And, you know, honestly, I thought it'd be fun to go through it because today, what are we talking about? We're talking about energy democracy today. Yeah. And so I thought it might be fun to go through my energy bill really quickly and, and look at It's kind of complicated. It's a, it's a little bit messy. There's like so many, there's this chart that's supposed to be at the top. There's just nothing there. And kind of just given up on telling me about my daily usage. It's like, yeah, you used a lot of energy. Stop using it. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I actually, my situation, the way my rent is all set up, it's all included. So I don't actually see a separate bill. So it'd be, it's exciting for you to go through. You don't even, you, you don't, you don't even get a bill no i don't just have, all i don't have to see you it. just pay you just somebody set, gets a bill I somebody gets a it. bill well in case you wanted to see it this is what it looks like this is what my bill looks like do you want to read out that total amount for me 182 dollars and 30 cents yes that's for a month which is not terrible luckily i split that with one other person so it's about you know 90 bucks per person which is this good is this bad that's that's on the low end it some months it gets uh over 300 if it's if it's hot or have, if it's really cold but have you calculated whether or not you were energy burdened I actually haven't. I should do that. You know, maybe after this episode, I'll sit down and actually do that to find out. I. It'd be nice to know what kind of what percentage you are paying. Yes. Of your, of your income. I have never thought to do that. And anyone who's listening to this, you should do that. You should take your energy bill. How do you calculate if you're energy burdened? I guess you would take your your all of your bills for let's say a year. Let's just say let's go back last year, 2022. Add up each month's bill, and then take that and divide that, and then divide your salary by that number. Yes. And then that will give you and then multiply it by 100 and that mm -hmm. will give you a percentage of how much energy, how much you spend on your energy bills. There you go. And ideally, you should be sending 6% or less. Wow. OK, 6% or less. I That's I don't know if I'm below that. I'll have to go look. Yeah. That's if curious. you're not, we're going to have to do some do some advocacy yes. for you. Yes. Well, this is actually interesting because have you ever have you ever had a Con Ed bill before? Well, I've never actually seen. No, I've never well, this had is perfect. One. This is like a great experiment that we have right in front of us right now. You should just look through this and tell me if this is the this is your first time looking at it. Okay. Where where would you look first? Like, let's walk through this. Let's let's get a, a beginner's eye perspective on this bill because I've seen this before, so I I know what to look for. But you know, try to find how much I pay uh, for electricity. I mean, literally, all I I'm just looking at the as just someone who is looking at this. All I see is the one eighty two thirty and mm -hmm. big bold uh, current balance due. Yep. And when you you owe us it, money, and you that's, 
That's what that means. And you actually owe us money. You actually owe them pretty soon. Yes, yeah. Like I, I unfortunately was traveling. <laughs> uh, we have some photo bombers. I was unfortunately traveling uh, at the beginning of the month. So, you know, I was, I was anticipating getting this bill, but I didn't actually see it until I got back. So, And, like, that's the only thing, honestly, that's all I would look at and where to pay. And I would probably not even question anything else on here. Yeah. But um, they do break it down. They do break it down on there how much you pay. So for my building, I have both gas, natural gas, and electricity. Okay, I see. Uh, some of that is for heating and cooling and some of it is for uh heating the water and i have a gas stove unfortunately so uh, like how much how much do you i pay according to that bill for electricity you pay for your electricity it says 46 19 oh no no, no. your total electricity is 128.82 and your total gas is 64.64 yes Ooh, so gosh. right now most of my bill is my electricity and that's because the electricity is used for the heating and cooling and it's been cool, cold, you know, for a little bit. So the heat, heat has turned on. So that's heating up the the air in our apartment. But there's two list. The thing that you looked at, the forty two, that's something, right? That is, there's two there's two charges for electricity. One is supply, and the other one is delivery, right? Yes. Ah, uh, yes. You have a supply charge, and you have a delivery charge. Yes. Which you know, I actually spent some time and looked at this because I didn't know. I was like, what What is the difference there? Because I was confused by that and. Essentially, supply is the actual energy, the, the, the energy itself, the actual cost of the kilowatt hours or like the, the electricity that you're using it normally exists on, on the market. You know, it's really complicated and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more later. And then the delivery is the actual bringing that electricity or, ga- or energy, whatever it is, to your home. And that's where Con Ed really plays the part in that. They're, they're the ones who actually are the deliver they're the the delivery man they're the, the delivery. <laughs> they're the ups guys of electricity no one can see this but the motion that he just made for delivery was like his arms swinging as he is walking yes i'm gonna bring you this carton full of electricity it is the universal symbol for delivery <laughs> yes and apparently they get there's some negotiation around what those rates are but essentially they they make they make some money or they they use the money the revenue from the delivery to actually do maintenance for all of the transmission yeah. lines and all that stuff, which is really interesting. I didn't know that. I thought they made money on all of it, but yeah. I mean, looking at this bill though, to be honest, like when you go to that second page, it has like the understanding your bill and stuff. It kind of does break it down in a, in a way that is relatively digestible, I will say mm-hmm. initially, but there's so much more complicated things that go on before you even get this bill that mm-hmm. I, I think that's like the, the part, cause we know that. Yeah, it looks mostly straightforward, and then you, it, it raises a million and a half more questions as to where does all this come from and why is it the way that it is, right? Right. Yes, and I think that leads us to talking about our, our guest speakers, right? And who do we have, who are we lucky to have as our, our interviews today? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking to Stephen Roundtree, uh, who's a former WEAC staff member, and he's now with Vote Solar, which is an organization that advocates for 100% clean energy. And maybe before we, we get to our interview with Stephen and also Brianna, who is our, our staff member who's going to help us debrief that interview, maybe we should go over a couple definitions and concepts. Yeah, let's do that. Cool. Where, where do you want to start? Like, well, we keep saying the word energy. Yes. Like, what does that mean? Yes. To me, energy is essentially the electricity and other fuels that are used to heat, cool, and run appliances and devices in our homes, right? Yeah. I think that's just straightforward. Yeah. Flat out. The real question is, how does that electricity and other people get to our homes? 
Yeah, that's the more complicated and complex part. But there are three major stages before energy even gets to your home. So you have to generate the energy. Um, then it has to be transmitted. So the transmission aspect to it. And then there's the distribution, which is getting it actually to the home. So let's just take an example here of an energy source like wind or solar. But we know that there are other energy sources that are not as re- that are not renewable, um, like oil, gas. So you generate that somewhere in a power plant of some sort. And then there's a transformer steps up the voltage of the transmission. So it makes it even more powerful. And it goes through those big transmission lines that you normally see. Like if you go through, like, I don't know if anyone's ever like traveled upstate or whatnot. And, you know, those vast land where there are just these huge, massive transition lines. Big, scary towers. Yeah, they they are kind of scary. (laughs) They look like they were put there by aliens. They look like what you think an alien spaceship would look like (laughs) if it was deconstructed or if it was being built. Yeah, they're very, yeah, they have a very... Oh, they're here already. (laughs) They're They're, finishing their ship. Cool. Aliens built the grid. (laughs) Hot take. Hot take. Uh, The transmission lines carry the electricity very long distances, right? So, you know, you normally don't have these big plants right outside your back door, especially in New York City. So upstate, larger spaces upstate carry these really long distances. And then they go into like a neighborhood transformer, which takes that uh, voltage down a little bit. So that way, you know, it's not high voltage because you can't go straight to your home when you do that. So you have to like basically turn it down a couple notches. Yes. Um, And those, you can see a lot of those like substations and stuff, maybe like within your neighborhood, you'll see those. They're like those really weird fenced off areas. Mm -hmm. And there's actually one not that far from our office too. It's right down the street. It's a part of our toxics and treasure store. It's uh, one of the Con Ed substations. Yep. And then once that goes there, then it's uh, then the distribution lines carry the electricity to houses. And I think in New York City, most of our power lines are underground, right? They kind of have to be. Yeah. Otherwise, those pigeons would mess those lines up. Could you imagine New York City if we had, like, above-ground lines throughout the city and just rows and rows of millions of pigeons? Honestly, that that would be kind of scary. Pigeon takeover. I, but to be fair, I think there are some lines that are above-ground. Like in Brooklyn, for example, I know some. I see some power lines in some places. And then again, the energy then from there is stepped down once a little bit more to make it, you know, so you can plug in and turn on your lights and charge your phones and all of your devices. Yeah. So you don't plug your, you know, microwave into the outlet and it just explodes in a rage of fire. Yes. Because that's what would happen if you didn't. Yes. It's going to burn that toast immediately. (laughs) Super toast. And you. And you. (laughs) None of of what you want. Yes. Well, so I think that's probably a good start, right? That we got some good definitions there. So maybe we go ahead and jump right into our interviews. Again, we got Stephen Roundtree. And then after that, we'll be back with Brianna Carbajal, who is our state legislative manager and can help us debrief that interview and talk about how it relates to the work that we do here at We Act. Sound good? Let's do it. Let's roll. Hey guys, I'm delighted to be back at the We Act office and to be joining you guys on the podcast. My name is Stephen Roundtree, you see him pronouns. I'm the deputy program director for the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic with Vote Solar. Uh, Vote Solar is a 501c3 or advocacy organization, nonprofit that is working towards building a robust and socially just solar-powered economy uh, across the U.S. Yeah, also note that I'm a proud We Act alum. I just to stomp down this ramp um, every day. So, so yeah, again, really delighted to be back. Um, I, you know, I was curious about about EJ issues and, and, and energy issues from a young age. I mean, we experienced energy instability when I grew up. So, like, we'd have, a, like, experienced one or two electric shutoffs growing up. And also, like, always, 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 we were running out of home heating fuel. So basically, like, they had this fuel that would, you know, be dumped into your house. It would grow up in Massachusetts, and this, you know, it would keep the house warm. 
and we'd be occasionally running out of it. The, the story I always tell is we were trying to figure out like how to get, you know, how to you know, call up the oil company and buy some, but they were, you know, they couldn't come till Monday. We were going to run out. And the guy was like, hey, listen, like hot tip, just fill the tank with diesel fuel because it's the same thing. It's literally the same substance. Yeah. It's just in two different regulated markets so that you don't do this. And we're like, all right, well, sure. So I went down and spent like, you know, hours in the freezing cold filling, like pouring diesel fuel into the boiler. And it was like, wait a minute, this house is a pickup truck. <laughs> like it's running yeah. on diesel. Like this is so messed up. Um, and this stuff is causing pollution and it's something that we're, it's being withheld from us because we can't pay for it. And it was, it was sort of like a, a, a that ain't right moment. And then I think it really launched me into thinking about um, questions of um, race and economics um, in space. I also live in a, in, a, in a rural area. Not many people look like me. And it was sort of like that was a question that came up in my mind. So, so yeah, that, that's always sort of animated my um, sort of my academic pursuits. And then, you know, eventually finding my way to WEACT um, and having already an interest in energy, energy policy, and then, and then doing a lot of energy policy here and then, and then moving on. To vote solar, which has been you know a challenge and a blast for the last three years. Um, so yeah, that's that's the short story. Um, certainly, you know, twists and turns in there. Yeah, I mean, I love that because I feel like everyone comes from a different place as far as where in their life they had this moment of realization about this bigger picture in terms of either energy specifically or environmental justice. So thanks for thanks for sharing that. Yeah, like you, you've already kind of started, and we'll just kind of dive into this question. You use the term energy democracy, and this is what this episode is all about. But like. Can you explain to everyone, like, what is the concept of, of energy democracy? Sure. So I can break the term into its component parts and then talk about some of the, the implications. So, you know, when we're talking about democracy, in this case, really, it really means people having power over decisions that impact their lives. You know, having that decision-making power, see the table, um, influence um, over things that, that impact them. And, and in the energy context, we're talking about people having decision-making power on issues of how and when we produce, consume, uh, pay for the energy we need for our lives, as well as decisions about who those choices benefit or burden. You know, sort of as a corollary on top of that, the connotation is that energy democracy goes hand in hand with the clean energy transition, um, because increasingly... The fossil economy is thriving counter to the will of the people for obvious reasons. People are overwhelmingly don't want to get sick from pollution, don't want our climate to be ruined, et cetera, et cetera. So that the sort of like the, the connotation there is that energy democracy will, will bring us toward a clean energy. And that's one of the one of the goals. Yeah. So, you know, those to me, those are my sort of working core concept of energy energy democracy. But really there's no one way to strive or towards or to achieve energy democracy. You know. Energy governance itself is really complicated and diverse, and so the needs and desires of people in different places with different priorities and resources are going to vary wildly. And you know the priorities of what you go after, how that looks to you, will, will change. So, you know, for example, here in Northern Manhattan, uh, the Solar Uptown Now project, right? You guys may be familiar with from from years back. That's sort of still manifesting today. Was a was really an effort to organize Northern Manhattan co-op buildings uh, to step into their power to take control of their energy future, get solar at a rate that is going to be affordable to their buildings, um, to, to sort of take control over the energy choices that they're they're making in their buildings and save money and, and, and help help stop climate change. You know, also groups like We Act are working on energy democracy projects with the state. They're working with NYSERDA to co-design programs that are going to um, support programs like Solar Uptown Now and others. So there's really, there's multiple levels of abstraction and just 
site specific and, and population specific ways that people are fighting for uh, and achieving energy democracy. But there's definitely no like one way to think about it. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think you've already started to, to touch on this a little bit in your answer, but can you give us a, a little bit more of an idea of what energy democracy means and looks like for people living in northern Manhattan and other environmental justice communities? Can you, I guess, paint us a vision for the aim for what we're striving for? You know, let's flash forward 15, 20 years. What, is, what would northern Manhattan look like if we were making strides towards a energy democracy Sure. Yeah. No. Um, that's a you know not a simple question. I think where, where I'd I'd start is sort of where we're at right now in Northern Manhattan. So um, uptown, and I say we as as an alum, but really you. Um, <laughs> so folks in Northern Manhattan who are are renters um, and electricity, their their energy bill is like the second highest bill that they'll pay after their rent. So it's like a really significant bill that impacts what their life situation is, what their ability to afford other things is. And that bill is, an, a, like you know, the total dollar amount is uh, comprised of line by line of different bodies that decide what the cost of that bill is. So there's, you know, you have one line that's like, this is the price of electricity based on the bulk purchasing market. The other one is, you know, the next one is what's the price you pay to have the electricity delivered along the, the wires through Con Ed. And then you also have, you know, importantly, a little line item that's for the Energy um, Research and, and Development Authority that pools that money. Then the state can then decide how to use it on energy projects or whatever. So you have a, you have a bill that you have to pay that it impacts your life, impacts your ability to afford other things and, and be okay and keep the lights on. But there is so much, so much decision making that's happening with that bill that most people don't know anything about and and frankly are told not to and are really like depoliticized from having an impact on but sort of on the other side of that there's dollars that can go towards building efficiency towards supporting new solar programs and people who live people who are renters can be a part of a community solar uh, array somewhere um, and they can they can elect into that they can shape what that program looks like so it suits them they can change um, and advocate for new energy efficiency spending, right? Or, or ways that they can get their buildings to be more um, more safe and, and comfortable. There's also you know, decisions that we can make about what, what the utility does when they're building stuff because they get paid, they get profit when they build stuff. Um, it's a really sort of antique model, but people in Northern Manhattan can say, hey, like, we don't need you guys to be building more substations. You should cool it with that, but rather invest in communities so that we don't use as much electricity so you don't need to build a, a big jungle gym of a transfer station or, or a substation to get electricity here. Rather, why don't you invest in our, our health in, in our homes uh, instead? So there's all these ways that, that sort of collaboration or decision-making is possible, but but again, people have been really depoliticized and, and, and are, are not incentivized to be part of those conversations. But that's not, I mean, I, I think like the moment we're in, I want to talk about this a little later, is like that moment is is changing. Um, and I think it's, that's why for me, it's such like a, uh, a hopeful and a, a, a nerve wracking, but really exciting moment. I think the the impacts to Northern Manhattan from climate are heat and storms. Extreme heat is going to impact the built environment more than non-built environments, as we know. Uh, and obviously we're on the coast in the mid-Atlantic that feels more and more like the tropics every year. Um, and we're going to be subject to to extreme weather, and I think it's harder and harder to ignore what 
those energy choices or, or our, our lack of, of advocacy and those energy choices sort of means um, for us. Did you want to touch on a little bit? Because um, I know you kind of you kind of danced around a little bit. Can you kind of like make that thread between energy democracy movement and in the environmental justice movement? Sure. Yeah. The, the energy democracy sort of movement or, or movements towards energy democracy are really closely related to the environmental justice, racial justice movements. And at times they're self-same and indistinguishable, um, depending on the context. You know, really the, the concept of the sort of, I think the, the binding concept is that when people are able to speak for themselves and speak for their, from their experience, they make choices that are right for them and right for their communities. And I think that's, that's the idea, like you, the, using the lever of energy democracy when people can say, hey, this is how this program affects me. This is what I need. And then it happens. Then it's, it's made to be the way the rules work. You're going to be, um, especially for folks who are at a deficit, who are being underserved or mistreated or exploited um, in the energy system. Like that's an opportunity for those folks to like change the way the system works for them. Um, and it's really, you know, obviously like deficits in energy democracy or deficits in, in um of having your voice heard, having um, power in these conversations is you know goes along the lines of, of race, class, um, gender, sexuality, um, all those, and so yeah, I, I really consider them to be to be really part of the same struggle, really really closely linked. Yeah, it's <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely one of those things where you know all all those things we talk about environmental justice all the time and energy democracy doesn't you know it never seems to be separate like concept and we're always kind of talking about this those at the same time. You know, people not getting what they what they deserve or not being at a table or some type of systemic or historic racist policy or practice or program or uh, so I you know feel like they're just they're they're so closely related that sometimes they just feel like one and the same in the work that we're doing. But could you give us a like an idea of what's the current state of the of the energy democracy movement? Sure. Um, you know, like I said, it's there's there's no one movement, um, but I think if we want to talk about New York and, and sort of what's what's popping here, um, I think it's it's in a really interesting place. And I think folks who are seeing the opportunity to, to remake the grid and remake our energy system um, are, are really making great gains and strides in in changing the conversation. So, you know, like, like I was saying earlier, earlier, like folks who are impacted by our energy system are like are feeling the stress over it. Like everyone has to pay a bill to feeling the stress. Folks who are impacted by climate are, are, are really feeling it in this moment. It's also sort of on a different level of abstraction. Like the grid needs to change to do what New York State's sort of policy goals are. So and for those who don't know, in 2019, New York State passed the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which was a decarbonization and social justice law, basically that is requiring the state to move towards decarbonization across the economy. And also, importantly, that it would spend a proportion of all public investment on disadvantaged communities, right? So that's acknowledging two things, like we need to change the energy grid, change what the system looks like, how it works, who's able to interact with it, who's able to contribute and, and, and benefit from it, just necessarily because of the differences between building a power, like, you know, building a coal power plant or a gas power plant and having solar panels or offshore wind, they just act differently. And so they require the system to be different. And that's sort of paired with this sort of exacerbating um, energy affordability, weather uh, and climate crisis that, that's, that's coming uh, and, and that is here. And so that the sort of confluence of these two, two sort of truths, having CLCP as a backup and then obviously like living in the world we're living in, I think is, is, is really opening up and animating uh, the advocacy space as well as 
know, industrial players to changing this thing around and doing a lot. And, you know, we're lucky in New York because we have really talented and, and motivated uh, advocates like we act and, and others around the state who are being really impactful in, in, in doing that. And we can talk about some of the specific efforts um, that are underway that I'm really excited about if we want. Do you want to do that now? Should we do it? Sure. Should yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one, I mean, I think this is like really right on point and one that, that I'm excited about is, is the Build Public Renewables Act, which you guys may have heard of. Boop, boop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the Build Public Renewables Act, really the the genesis here, what I think one of the animating um, factors in, in, in folks advocating for the Build Public Renewables Act, which the law would, in short, impl- uh, empower the state power authority, NIPA, which owns Niagara Falls, owns some of the large, uh, large transmission wires across the state already, but it would empower that agency, A, to be able to build clean energy resources, right? Also, the, the law would... Um, reform their board, um, and also, you know, instate in some really strong um, worker uh, worker training and compensation standards that would expand what, what what's already going on. So the bill is really exciting because what it would do is it expand state power, right? And by when you think about expand, expanding state power, the the state is responsible to the people, and that's something that, that that's a goal in and of itself. Right now, the tension with um, CLCPA, the bill was passed, right? CLCPA was passed as a law, and the state has mandates to decarbonize. It's the state's mandate. They're responsible for it at the end of the day. But the way in which the state has chosen largely to make those requirements come to life or make it real is basically just say, hey, like we're going to take state money, that $1.78 on everyone's electric bill, turn that into packages that will bring private industry to the table to do the work. And we'll hope that in doing so, that activity will then benefit disadvantaged communities who have been left out of this economy from the, be- from the beginning anyway. And so I think that sort of cognitive dissonance, you know, public, public mandate, but it's expected to be done through the private sector that's anarchic. It's not beholden to the government, really. They'll do it if they want to do it. If they, they aren't put in a place to do it, they won't do it. Um, obviously, people want to work in the state, but it's like they don't have to. And so there's a cognitive distance there where people are saying, hey, well, wait a minute, like this is not a government for the people. This activity is not working in support of people. But rather, if we could have the state authority empowered to do some of this work, we could have some assurances that the state mandate is going to be connected with the state ability to do it. And so that's really, I think, what's what's driving this thing in, in large part is really the striving for energy democracy and striving for control over the mandate from the same people who won CLCPA, who are community groups, workers, um, local people across New York. Yeah. And just for folks who aren't familiar with CLCPA, can you say a little bit more about, about what it is? Uh, we haven't actually covered it yet in any of our podcast episodes, so it might be helpful for some background. Yeah, sure. Like, like I said, you know, the, the, the two key components are the components that, that we work on the most are this decarbonization schedule. Oh, um, schedule. Um, which you know, which requires that the, the state's sort of power generation, you know, among other things, the state's power generation is going to be seventy percent renewable um, by twenty thirty and a hundred percent fossil free, hundred percent clean energy, which includes nuclear by twenty forty. Right, those are sort of like the key build sort of milestones, and that they're also within that there's six gigawatts of distributed or local solar in the mix too. Now the state's gone to, to, to ten because they have the they have the wherewithal. Um, to go to 10, they've actually spent a billion and a half dollars of the people's money to go to 10, um, to create a billion, you know, billion and a half dollar incentive package to do that. And then in, in, in doing so, the, the other big sort of important part of the law is the social equity requirement, right? It says at least 35 
percent with a goal of 40 percent of the benefits of public investment of sort of energy transportation all sort of like the the uh, transition to clean energy spending is going to benefit disadvantaged communities now it's sort of intentionally unintentionally squidgy what it means that those funds are going to benefit disadvantaged communities and i've been on the record saying that like just having 35 or 40 percent of the funds being vaguely related to disadvantaged communities is not enough and that there are other really sort of rigorous ways to to track benefits and understand them um, as a proportion of the whole spend but that's the that to me it's it's the backstop it's the it's the scoreboard you can point to when you're when you're giving a rationale for 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 pushing for more for people um and and help new yorkers live uh, you know a thriving life yeah that makes sense and something i want to maybe uh, unpack a little bit more just because i think it might provide a little bit more context and maybe some more grounding and reality for folks who aren't as deeply uh, in, engaged in this uh, area, in the, the energy space. It's just the context of, you, know, you mentioned some numbers around gigawatts of energy from, from solar and other things. Could you put that into, into context? I mean, just like think of uh, like a building, for example. If a building were to put some solar panels on their roof, what like ballpark, you know, amount of energy would people be thinking about and how much would that contribute? Just for, just for folks to have some kind of sense of what a gigawatt or what a megawatt of energy looks like in, in a, in a sure. in the city context. Sure, yeah. So I, I like to think of it as like a small New York apartment uses maybe like three megawatts a year. And so a gigawatt is is like a thousand megawatts. I don't know. Doing, mm-hmm. math, doing math on the air is, <laughs> is not good. Do um, but, but, but yeah, basically like we're looking – and just for some further context for fun, like the state's thinking about – you know, the state just passed one gigawatt – of distributed solar, so local solar that interconnects to local grids. And it's like, you know, anywhere from rooftop solar to a small sort of solar field. What, you know, Vote Solar, part of what we do is we do modeling. We do like, we do modeling and planning activities. So what we've modeled out for New York State is actually that it needs more than 80 gigawatts of just solar to meet, sort of to be on the sort of the best path for decarbonization. And that's not even counting like things like nuclear, which arguably aren't a good idea. So really, it's like we're we're doing good things. We've done so much more than we've done, but it's very different from like being where we need to be. Mm. You, you know, it, it's we really still are at the starting block, and that's that's like you know to me another reason why why BPRA has felt so important to a lot of New Yorkers. You can like look at again, like look at the scoreboard. Like we have, you know, somewhere between four and six percent of New York State's electricity is, is produced by wind and solar, mm. and and again, like the the projections say it needs to be about half coming from just solar. And so we're, we're far off and we really need, you know, kicking the pants. And, and I think um, a lot of people are feeling like, hey, this, the state's got a play, part to play in this um, as, a, as a primary actor. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Thank you for that context. Yeah. And one thing else that I would like you to pick apart a little bit, because this is this is also fascinating, because I, I know a lot of people, they just get their bill. They look at it and you talked about some of these different line items and money that's going towards, you know, they don't really know what that is. What part of this system that we have right now is broken that's not getting us to the point of because you said there, you know, there's money, there's public money that's supposed to be going into private hands for them to do something, uh, you know, along to make this work. But it doesn't seem like that's happening. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that's really challenging with the energy system. I think for me, like the the one thing is just staring down these hostile monoliths of utilities, like investor-owned utilities. They're, they're just companies. Like, they basically serve a public good. You know, back in the day, the one electric company was the only people, only person running, you know, only ones running lines were just getting electricity. And I'll note that New York has the oldest grid in, in the country, so it's this old sort of 
cranky, ad hoc planned um, thing. And the utilities have sort of made a relationship with the public for themselves where they're a private company, they're monopolies locally. They are regulated by the Public Service Commission, but the, that, those relationships are very close. And so they're, they're regulated by someone, but they have a lot of impact on how they're regulated. And they're really looking first and foremost to protect their profits and protect their profitability. So they're doing this work. They've done it, it, it you know, the way they've done it, the whole way. There's power plants generate electricity from power plants. It goes down. People are billed for their energy. But now we're in a situation where, okay, we can't be burning fossil fuels because we're going to torch the planet. Um, and also those fuels are becoming more price volatile with international conflict and climate disruption, et cetera, et cetera. And so things need to happen to change how it runs. We need to be building the grid in a different way, building solar and wind that interconnects where closer to where people live to make this whole grid more dynamic and more usable. But one of the key problems there is then interconnection to the grid. How do you, what's the way in which and what's the process by which people can plug stuff, good stuff into the grid and actors can plug good stuff in the grid and, and part of what's where states are sort of um, really challenged right now is figuring out like just how to make a process that is a fast because we just literally our hair is on fire. We need to be doing this stuff really fast as uh, as a state and really just even in the current state of affairs as as a private industrial actors who are doing this work, they need to do it really fast. But also we need to understand how to socialize the cost of that because what happens is there be the grid. And you can say, hey, I got a nice field here. I want to build a solar farm. We could definitely build a solar farm here. Because there's a field and they're like, hey, well, you're not really close to a substation. If you want to build a solar farm here, you need to pay a bazillion dollars to run a new cable. And you pay for that cable if you're the developer or else the thing doesn't get built. But then the cable can make your project not work. It makes it cost too much to want to do it. But then if you do you know, sort of shell out and do it and somehow make it work, then everyone else who wants to build a solar farm afterward just gets a free new free line. And so they don't have to pay for it. And so, the, you know, New York State has done a lot of work on figuring this out and building sort of like building sort of ad hoc sort of solutions to this. But there's still a lot to talk about as far as like who's a stakeholder, who benefits, who's burdened by this, um, how much, if any, should the public pay for this, um, which, you know, at Vote Solar, we'd argue that you should because solar is good for everyone, even if you're not the one who's doing it. Um, but that's a conversation that is not a really a democratically sourced and rigorous conversation, as rigorous as it could be right now. So I think the interconnection conversation is, is one that that is, is rich and is a big issue, for one. And then certainly the issue, just to, to round back to the electric bill, of thinking about how how utilities spend their money. Like, that's part of their conversation, is they're like, hey, well, are we responsible for, instead of waiting for someone to beg us to build a new line, do we have a responsibility to practically plan and say, hey, like, we... We don't care because of the utility, but like we know that the grid needs to change. People are going to be asking us to interconnect. And so what's their responsibility um, and how is that shared among among people who pay electric bills? Because a lot of you know how they get paid is they get they get paid through rates. So it's a big stew of complicated things. And that's what really what makes it so frustrating and challenging to get involved, um, because there's like a whole backlog of things you need to, to sort of understand or, or at least the thought is that you need to understand before you engage. And, and I, I'd like to unpack that a little bit more. The the need for, the need or lack of the need for like technical expertise in making these decisions. I think that's something that, that's something we've talked about 
you know, I've talked about it. We act, and obviously, it's like something that is a really important issue. Could you say? I mean, you're, you're welcome to talk oh, more yeah. about it now. Just yeah, to give yeah, a little bit yeah. more context. Let's do it. I mean, just to just to address that. I mean, like again, the grid is super complicated. It has so much impact in our lives, and there's this presumption that people who are engineers, like lawyers, regulators, business people, are the only people who sort of have what it takes to shape this thing and talk about it. And certainly, like you need people who who like you know know how the machine works to talk about it. Um, but I think it's like really far from the truth to say that they're the only folks like that's the stakeholder group. I think people who are are say you know people who don't have a high income, don't have uh, don't have high wealth, living in northern Manhattan who have to pay an electric bill and have a lot to juggle and live in this world, live in this um, this environment. Like you have to be an expert in your own life and you have to be an expert in your experience with the energy system in order to survive. And so when we're designing the energy system of the future, like those folks have like a huge stake in what good policy looks like. Because you can't be like, well, from here, it seems like it should look like this. And like, no, someone has to deal with this and really is paying attention to it. Like they're an expert. Listen to them. And then, and then not just like listen to me like, oh, thanks for coming in. Mm-hmm. Say, okay, now we're going to do this. Yeah. Um, and then you, you know, you can get really better outcomes. I think people think, um, you know, listening to community voices is, is about sort of like, oh, we just have to do it because... It's like the nice thing to do. It's like, no, if you, you want to get it right, listen to what people are telling you about their lives. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that experiential piece and, and, and thinking about expertise is more than just having a degree yeah. um, in this situation. Yeah, that seems to be a pitfall that so many people fall into in like the planning space and policy world of forgetting to meaningfully engage community members speak and then they're want they're wondering why the thing that they built or that they planned failed because oh, they yeah. didn't input get any input from community members and it's yeah because they know what it should look like to actually benefit them and and be meaningful and I, i'm actually i wrote down something earlier that you kind of made me think of again that i wanted to circle back to you mentioned when we were talking about energy democracy that it's more than one movement, and and maybe this is the component of it. There's there's multiple dimensions of it. I just wanted to circle back to that and, and give you a chance to maybe say a little bit more about and maybe unpack what you meant by um, it's more than just one movement when we're talking about energy democracy. Sure. Yeah, I mean, just thinking on on different levels, right? Like, are you are you trying to pass a bill? I would say like passing CLCPA um, was a huge victory for the movement of energy democracy because it's saying like we're going to change just what the rules are around whose needs get met. Uh, and it's a, it's a popular movement to, to affect that. Um, and then, right, so that's like, that's one separate thing. I think it's really different to say, hey, we're going to be working and bringing, you know, we act members to the table to negotiate against or negotiate with a developer on prices for electricity or for prices for solar panels to, to sort of hold power on how that goes. And it's just like people with different different priorities of needs, right? People who are living in a co-op are like, we need to keep this thing in shape. This thing, the, you know, the, the, the building costs money and we need to save money. And, and having rooftop solar is like a direct way to sort of, instead of just saying, hey, we just, we're bound to pay our electric bill, whatever it comes up. You're saying, no, like, we have some agency here. Mm-hmm. So we can, we can get organized. We can do our own thing. You know, obviously, like this is happening at the international level, like members of the, the global south are organized sort of collectively against the you know, fossil crushing countries like the U.S. and and you know those conversations are happening everywhere. Um, yeah, so it's it's really like tied into multiple movements, um, I, I would say, and and just happening like at, at all sort of like levels of choice. Uh, I don't know if that's like that's unpacking it enough, but hopefully it's it's more. Is there one ultimate goal 
Yeah, no, no drills, no bills, baby. <laughs> I mean, I love you know, that. that that's, <laughs> that's you know that that's love kind it. of saying something, but it, but it, it's not too much to ask. You know, I, I was someone wiser than me once said like the the raw materials of utopia are all around us. Like it's our world. It's the same world. We can have whatever world we want, and you know, we talk about like, oh, let's try to find a way to make electricity affordable. I'm like, yes, like that's better than it not being affordable. But maybe what if it wasn't something we had to worry about? Same, the same way like public transportation could be free, and that's truly not too much to ask. If you're making electricity with wind and solar, you know, there's no fuel. So why is it, you know, why, why are we, we like be paying for it? Um, just because somebody else sort of captured that value. You know, it's, it's questions we can ask ourselves. And, I, you know, I always like to like think expansively, think down the future, down the, the road of the future to the world you want and not really feel bound by the world we have. Like, no drill, no bills. Uh, yeah, yes, no drills, no bills. That's the tagline for this episode now. I no drills, so. no bills. Circling back to people being engaged with this work, can you? And I know you said maybe it, it's difficult in some ways, given that the landscape and uh, maybe folks aren't being engaged as much as they should be. But can you maybe speak to how folks who are listening to this can get involved and help move this work forward in a meaningful way? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I. I always encourage people to get involved with with the political process in the place they live. I think in, in New York, you know, everything I've learned from being an advocate in New York has been that experiential storytelling uh, matters, and it matters to decision makers. If you talk to your elected official and just say like, "Hey, I live in your district. This is my experience. I, I, this needs to change." Um, that's part of it. I think getting educated is really important. Organizations like like we act, like the New York State Energy Democracy Alliance work with community members across the state, uh, the state to um, turn people, you know, you know, bulk people up into storytellers. Um, and, and, you know, those trainings are available um, to, to get to understand this stuff better. And then it's like, you know, Albany's a three-hour schlep, but it's, it's there for us. And, you know, I think... That's really important. And also just getting getting involved is just like part of what I was saying, just getting involved with an organization who can help get you organized. I mean, I think, again, we'll, we'll talk about WEAC just being a place where folks can, you know, instead of saying individually, I'm stressed on an electric bill, gathering together and saying, oh, I'm stressed with it, you're stressed with it, you're stressed with it. It's a problem. It's not my problem. It's our problem. That's a political problem that we can fix. And I think just... Finding ways to talk to other people, get involved with organizations who are dealing with, with the issues, can help you reach a sense of uh, a sense that it's a mutual problem that we can all, we can all solve it. Yeah, and I think just don't don't let yourself be depoliticized. Don't let yourself think that it's preordained and that you can't make a difference. And and, and yeah, just being involved with someone who's doing the work on the ground um, and, and pitching in and showing up, I think, are my advice. That's great. Great. And I, I, I like that, you know, that kind of like psychosocial element of like, you're not the only one. I feel like there's a lot of shame around not being able to pay a bill or, yeah. or like something like that, you know, or choosing between your electricity bill and medication or food. Right. Like that's very, you know, people feel very ashamed, but like there's so many people actually going through that exact same thing and, you know, kind of understanding for every for everyone started telling their stories and everyone had that individual story told we'd have a line outside, you know, just wrapped around the city oh, yeah. alone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it is an interesting opportunity because like, if you can get people, you know, if you can sort of like make the point or, or start to talk to your neighbors, about like, Hey, like, don't you hate Con Ed? Be like, yeah, like everyone does. Like they're not, you know, I'll say that Con Ed is, you know, not, 
know, singularly evil, but but it's definitely you know it puts a tax on people's lives. It puts a um, it's a it's a day to day challenge for a ton a ton a ton of people, and and so getting engaged is is um, can be exciting. I'm, I'm, can I ask one more thing? You can, we could probably cut this if you want to. Right. Sure. Is there anything that they're doing right? Content. Yeah. Like, <laughs> don't worry. They're not. They're, we've already established they are just not going to sponsor this episode or any yeah, episode. They're not, they're not so. funding any of this. <laughs> yeah. Love you, mean it, Con Ed. But I, I you know, one one thing I can say uh, that they've recently done is they sort of supported or didn't oppose the All Electric Buildings Act for New York State, which is kind of funny because they're an all electric utility. So the the other electric and gas utilities had to kind of like sweat it out when the all electric utility was like, "This is fun." <laughs> yeah, we, so of course we want this. So, yeah, so I, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, but how do they feel about like? public renewal <laughs> yeah i mean like, well well you know I'll, I'll note that it's not because of the the way that new york is set up like the utility the local utilities don't have as much oh, right. of a stake in the generation they just sort of they, they buy it on a bulk market so yeah. if um if nipa's selling it on a bulk market market or participating in that market in some way then that's not kind of not their business got it but but yeah i mean you know they're 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 about their money and they're they're about not doing work they don't want to do and it's like it's kind of it's a tough thing to hold and still being responsive to this moment. I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, well, thank you for, for all of your insights into this space so far. I feel like I'm very not an expert at all. So I think maybe that's a good thing. Cause then I had some basic questions that maybe some of our listeners would have as well. But before we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to share anything else that you want to promote that uh, you think folks should know about uh, while you're here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, just while, while I'm here, the, the, the top thing that I would promote if you are listening to the podcast is to get get involved with We Act and support We Act. Um, if, if you if you, you obviously know a little bit because you're here, but you know they're in Northern Manhattan. They're doing really. You guys are doing really incredible work on so many fronts um, in DC and 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 in New York. That if you have time, if you have money, look no further. Um, I mean, get involved. Um, from my perspective at, at Oat Solar, we're a group that that works with and and is supportive of of we act a lot. I mean, we're interested in the storytelling aspect. Like we're not a community-based organization. We're not a base building organization, but we do we can do a lot with storytelling and narrative. And if you're, you know, if someone who was interested in solar, interested in energy, um, and has a story to tell, um, we'd lo- we'd love to be in conversation and and elevate your you know your voice on on that. But yeah, I mean, simple. Just support we act. Great. Love that. And luckily, we're going to have Brianna join us after this. And we're going to talk a lot about some of the who is our state legislative manager, who's Amazing. going to talk a lot about the uh, policy work and the work that we're going to be doing around um, energy democracy. Tremendous. Yes. Yeah, Brianna is the best. Mm-hmm. And we'll make sure to uh, share any links that you want to promote. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll wrap it there. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you both. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brianna. And I'm going to turn it over to you just to introduce yourself and give us some background about how you got into environmental justice and energy justice specifically. Sure. Thanks for having me, you guys. Not like we don't sit together all day, every day in the We Act <laughs> office. We get to do it again. Yay. Uh, yay. I'm Brianna. I'm the state legislative manager here at We Act for Environmental Justice, pronouns they, she. And I'm really excited to talk to y'all today about what 
drew me to this line of work and why energy justice is such a priority for everything we do here at WEACT. Um, when I first started as an intern, my manager was the amazing Jasmine Graham. For many folks in the climate space, you probably know Jasmine, you know that they are a wonderful, bubbly personality. And I learned so much during that internship, but one of my first assignments was actually to go call people and talk to people in our community in northern Manhattan and check in on them, see how they're doing. This was late 2021, early 2022, so like just right post the peak of the pandemic. And I was calling folks in our community that have been WEAC members for many years, and I was just asking them a bunch of questions about what's their financial situation like now, what are they spending their a majority of their funds on. And I was hearing that utility bills they were seeing from their utility provider, which is for most people living in northern Manhattan, Con Edison, their bills were in the thousands. One story in particular stuck with me. It was a woman who was pregnant, about six months pregnant, and had a two-year-old child in the home. And she was telling me that her bill was upwards of $5,000. Wow. Um, she had utility debt that was backlogged that she couldn't afford to pay during the pandemic since I believe her partner had lost his job very recently. And she, instead of heating or being able to heat, there were repairs going on in the building that were not done after her repeated requests to the landlord. And as a result, she was using her gas stove to heat the apartment, mm. which, as we all know, here at WEACT, we just put out an amazing study called Out of Gas In With Justice that our wonderful climate justice campaign organizer, Annie, put together looking at two years worth of research on getting gas stoves out of people's buildings. And a huge takeaway from that is that nitrogen dioxide is responsible for like increasing 35% of indoor air pollution emissions, which is actually like illegal for a legal EPA level for outdoor emissions, which is incredibly, it just speaks to how horrible it is for people to resort to using gas stoves for heating, mm -hmm. um, especially when they can't afford their energy bills as is. So that really opened my eyes to the world of energy justice, energy poverty. What does it look like when people are energy burdened? Um, and energy bills being the second largest expense for folks um, after rent, I knew I had to focus on helping people make energy accessible and mm -hmm. equitable and provide them a chance to a pathway to energy democracy. Great. Yeah, and it's, it's it's so sad to hear those stories because there there are way more people who are experiencing that than I think a lot of people quite you know understand. But also, the fact that uh, it's such a layered issue, right? We went from one environmental justice issue <laughs> to another one with the gas stove, um, and just kind of like the you know what we call cumulative impact is it's just. It's very exemplary of some like the, the work we do and like really trying to uh, tackle all of that. Something I want to touch on because I think that what's 
helpful with all this is to put it into perspective of, you know, our lived experience. And you're talking about how this, this one particular story moved you so much. And I wanted to get more of a sense of whether this was a new thing to you at the time or if it's something that you had seen growing up, you know, with other people that you knew. I, I think as younger adults or like younger people, we pay less attention, I think, to our energy bill because, you know, that's our, our parents' problems. But we're still around it. We still see some residual effects of it in some way, shape or form. So what was that like for you? Was this a new experience for you? Is this something that you had some kind of familiarity with uh, growing up or with people that you knew growing up? No, it was not a new experience for me. Uh, For folks who don't know me, like the people in the room do, um, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles and I came, did not come from a wealthy family. My family are very much working class and we struggled a lot financially I remember my mother actually even, you know, oftentimes using instead of an electric heater that she was worried would drive up the energy bill like crazy, turning on the gas stove because she thought that was a great alternative uh, to heating our house. So, you know, or we didn't live in an efficient building. A lot of homes in Los Angeles are not weatherized very well, given that L.A. has a history of being always sunny. But, you know, even in the climate crisis, we're seeing that is not the case any longer in California. They've been experiencing tornadoes. They've been experiencing snowstorms and floods that people are freaking out about for good reason. I mean, this is historic weather we're seeing in California. And as a result, even then, my mom has called me recently saying she received an energy bill that was so out of left field since um, due from her usual bill that she receives that she was freaking out about how they would afford to pay it monthly. So you know, this is a topic that does hit close to home. And it's uh, one that I'm sure is resonating with many other families, um, not in only in northern Manhattan, but all over the United States. Yeah. And you, you, you know, you've done it in the capacity of working here. We acted a really great job of like making that connection, because I think when people hear, you know, energy justice or energy democracy, it's such a foreign term unless you are a nerd in, in that space. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about your utility bills or you talk about electric bills or not being able to afford a bill, I think people instantly understand and and can gravitate towards that. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of make energy justice and energy democracy accessible to people? Yeah, like you're saying, like when you when you say energy democracy, even to me, when I was first getting into this line of work, I was like, what does that really mean? You know? Does it mean that we vote for energy? (laughs) Um, And in a way, yes, it means that your voice matters. We uh, we uh, think energy and we believe and we know energy is a human right. And as a result, we're always working towards that goal. And we have a vision for what we really want to see changing the system that is extractive and profiteering and polluting in terms of our energy and making it towards one that runs on renewables is equitable um, has community participation at the forefront, is affordable, and is healthy for you and your family and your well-being for the far into the future. So how do we go from this system that really no one voted for and move to one that is with the community at the center and 
is a system that is accountable to the people, is a system where people have a say in what the vision is and overall is healthy for us and our planet. That's great. Thank you. And with that in mind, I think, you know, trying to translate some of these bigger concepts, I know that you had a chance to listen to our interview with Stephen and had some thoughts and, and maybe some things to, to connect the dots with some of those bigger picture concepts that he talked about with some of the work that we're doing here at WEAC. So I want to open it up for you uh, to, to maybe talk about some of those those pieces that I know you have highlights on and where, where, where do you want to start? Yeah, I, I think Stephen did a really fantastic job in summing up what are those large, big picture ideas that kind of drive all the work we're doing. I mean, he mentioned the CLCPA, our climate law, being that kind of gold standard or not even gold standard. It's what we need to achieve a decarbonized New York State in order to align with uh, meeting our climate goals globally. So it's really an important law. And it's one that we at New York State are always doing our best to make sure that we are meeting the mandates that are set there. Um, so when we look at New York State, even what is our current state of being within um, New York? And we know we have one of the oldest housing stocks in New York. As a result, that means that folks are living in conditions that are issues of chronic deferred maintenance. They have mold, lead, asbestos, pest, housing. The housing crisis is extricably linked to the climate crisis and energy justice because we can't uh, meet our state's decarbonization goals without remediating people's homes. And if we can't remediate people's homes, we can't make them electrification ready, energy efficient ready, which is what we need to meet our climate goals. So it all ties together. And it's all a vision in how we get to the goals of the CLCPA. And so here at WEACT, we have a bunch of policies that we're using, we're advocating for to further the goals outlined in the climate law. Um, the first one being um, the Energy Efficiency, Equity, and Jobs Act. And thank you for sticking with me as I said that. It's a mouthful. Um, it's also pronounced EJA if you want to be using the cool shorthand. And what it would do is exactly like I was saying, get rid of the unhealthy parts of people's living conditions, you know, the environmental hazards like lead, mold, asbestos, pests that people are living with before we go in and do energy efficiency upgrades so that we're not locking people into unhealthy housing. When you do efficiency upgrade work, you're sealing in, um, the building envelope of a home or building, and as a result, you're tightening the indoor air sealant. So you're, if you're doing an efficiency upgrade without remediating a home first, it's as a result exacerbating the horrible indoor air quality and you're making actually things worse. Um, so we need to make sure that EJA is allowing the state to couple remediation work with energy efficiency upgrades and unlocking those funds to be equitably distributed across New York State and especially in disadvantaged communities. Um, so it's a really important bill and one that we advocate for very heavily here at WEAC that we want to see passed this year. Along with that broader goal of this just transition and 
making sure that energy justice is at the center. We need to make sure that, like we were saying a little earlier, that energy is affordable. We can't have people spending thousands of dollars on energy bills that is not that's not justice at the center that is profiteering and we need to make sure that um, energy burdens which one in four people one in four households in new york city are energy burdened by 17 percent and the state actually says that folks need to be at six percent so we need to make sure that's a mandate and that's law and that's where the new york heat act comes in and that energy burden is uh, the percent uh, that you pay to utilities based on your income, right? Yeah. So your energy burden is defined as a one's household income. How much of that household income is being spent on energy expenditures? Um, so we need to make sure that you know folks who are spending, you know, seventeen percent or more of their income get to that six percent threshold, so that energy is actually affordable. And people can pay their bills without going into debt. I don't feel like that's a, a hard goal. <laughs> and it's really achievable if we pass the New York Key Act. Um, what that bill will do is first and foremost get gas out of our homes. It gets rid of two really outdated laws in New York State, um, one being the obligation to serve and the other being the 100-foot rule. And both of those rules are ones that utilities and the state hide behind, saying that they can't get rid of gas hookups. They always have to be putting gas hookups in buildings so that they can, because those rules have them continuing to place natural gas in people's homes. But if we pass the New York Heat Act, it gets rid of those laws, and so we no longer have to quote unquote, have to put gas hookups in buildings and we can codify or put into law a mandate saying that folks are not going to be spending more than spending more than six percent of their energy uh, of their income on energy. That's super helpful. And I feel like with that breakdown, uh, those are some concrete actions that we want people to be engaged with. But for some people, that seems daunting. It seems like a lot of big policies, a lot of big things. What does that look like for an average, you know, WEAC member or just person listening to this podcast, what what's their role? Like, what can they do as far as helping to move these policies forward and helping to be advocates for these things that we clearly need to have to make sure that we're promoting environmental justice? Yeah, I mean, we always, I feel like the one place where I hear most excitement and like you were saying earlier, Lonnie, is the energy bills portion, you know, people are struggling. They know someone or they know of someone um, in their community that can't afford to pay their bills. Those stories are incredibly important. People need to hear from you first and foremost, what your experience is and how upset you are that energy isn't treated like a human right currently. Um, and so we here we act often have ways for community members to get involved in telling your legislators directly either via phone call via a sign-on letter uh, whether it be testifying at a hearing um, whatever ways you're able to make your voice heard we want to amplify that and we want to be able to have you tell your story and that will um, make a giant impact on us moving these bills forward um, so that we make it so New York State is a place that is forwarding energy justice.
Yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't realize how impactful their story is when it comes to moving uh, legislators to do the right thing. So, you know, I, w- I would always also encourage people to kind of make sure they tell their stories, even if you call up Brianna or, <laughs> or and just be like, I'm going to tell you my energy story. And then that way she can take it and have it and we can utilize that. Um, it's a really great tool for for moving policies forward that I think a lot of people don't realize how how important their voice is. Yeah, it definitely is. One term that you used, and I want to circle back to you just to make sure for folks who aren't familiar with it, I think is an important piece of this world of dealing with the energy justice issues is profiteering. You used that word a couple of times. Can you unpack that for folks and what that means and why that is a part of the problem? Yeah, um, I'll give a very concrete example in profiteering, which is actually something that Stephen touched on in his earlier call here with you all was when we're... Our current energy system is one that is extractive, is profiteering. And what I mean by that is right now in New York State, and especially for folks in northern Manhattan and New York City, the most majority of people are paying their utility bills to what's called an IOU, um, an investor-owned utility. And what that means is it's a profit-driven model. Um, so they have investors, give like a company, so let's say Con Edison, they have investors that will continue to profit from the company making money. And the way they make money is continuing to build infrastructure that is natural gas infrastructure. So they will continue to raise rates. They will continue to build natural gas infrastructure, because not because it's serving people and serving the needs of our community, but because it's serving their investors and creating profit. So that is really what I mean in what I'm saying profiteering is we have an extractive model that's not putting the needs of people first, and we absolutely need to be putting people first. And we can do that with energy democracy, which is now a good time to mention BPRA. And like yeah, let's hear it. Yes, yes. If people <laughs> okay. aren't motivated by now after hearing that to like take action. Like, you know, this is this is this is it right here. Yeah, I was going to I was just going to say, like, how do we move away from that model? Yeah. So that model I was referring to for investor owned utilities is one that could be done for. I mean, if we pass the Bill Public Renewables Act, which has so much momentum in New York State, there are so many advocates pushing for this bill. It is a transformational bill that is getting a lot of recognition and people power moving this this legislation forward. Um, and so it's really exciting. And what it would do is give people a public utility option. So instead of being being an investor-owned utility, the people will have a say in what this utility does for folks. And it's going to be transparent, democratically controlled, and provide affordable utility bills to folks in New York State. Really what the bill does as well is make sure that we're meeting our climate goals. So with the mention of the CLCPA earlier and Stephen explaining the great um, goal, decarbonization goals it sets out for the state, the BPRA, consider it as our renewable energy safety net. If the state is not currently setting forth a plan to meet our climate law mandates and decarbonize us uh, efficiently by 2030, then that's where like NIPA 
and the BPRA kick in in being able to build until we meet that mandate renewable energy products projects across New York State. Um, so it's incredibly important for environmental justice communities to be given affordable energy bills. Um, it's also going to be accountable to community members and it, it, they're going to be transparent in what they're, how they're building their energy projects. So it's a really important bill and it's a way that we're giving power back to the people, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. And for folks who don't know, NYPA is the New York Power Authority, correct? Yes. Great. Well, anything else that you wanted to touch on that we didn't have a chance to, to talk about yet that you think is important for folks to know about energy justice? I think so. I think I covered it. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much, Brianna, for joining us and uh, we'll hope to have you back again soon. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Yeah. We're all going to go back to the same space. Yes. <laughs> we're going back to our same room. <laughs> bye, okay, bye, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you made it this far, that probably means you enjoyed what you heard. So make sure you look out for new episodes on the last Monday of every month. You can also check out We Act on Facebook at We Act for EJ. That's W-E-A-C-T-F-O-R-E-J. And on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at We Act for EJ. That's W-E-A-C-T number four EJ. And check out our website, weact.org, for more information about environmental justice. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, you can always reach out to us directly by emailing podcast at weact.org. All right, that's it, folks. And remember, no drills, no bills. No drills, no bills.